Our scripture reading for today comes from Matthew chapter 6, uh, uh, verses 1 to 14. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right is doing, that your charitable deed may be done in secret. Your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you've shut the door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Therefore do not be like them, for your Father knows the things that you have need of before you ask him. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. As we continue our study of Matthew's Gospel, we're going to focus in on the Lord's Prayer this morning. Be encouraged by it, break it down, think about it line by line, and uh, hopefully be encouraged as we revisit this familiar text in a fresh way. We enjoyed uh, some worship this morning with uh, two very skilled guitar players. And the thing about guitars is they don't stay in tune. And as, as skilled as our guitar uh, players are, if they were to take their guitars to work tomorrow and say, hey, I just want to play a little something for you guys in the break room while you're having your coffee, you know, if that were a thing, um, they wouldn't just pull the guitar out and play it. They'd have to tune it again. Because between today and tomorrow, just existing, they go out of tune. Life, they go out of tune. Prayer is a gift given to us because the human soul has a proclivity in this fallen world of ours to go out of tune. And so prayer is a gift of God's grace to retune us and to bring us into uh, flourishing. So we're going to look at this this morning. The Lord's Prayer is gospel-rich. It's, it's rich in liturgy. For those of you who are exploring Christian faith today, the word liturgy is a word we use in church. It just means order. It's the order of things. It's, there's, a, there's a flow and an, and, and a, and an, and an, uh, an ebb to the worship in Sunday mornings and even in this prayer. It's an intentional guide. And so Jesus gives us something beautiful. We will take a look at that. And for those of you who happen to be parents, the Lord's Prayer is an excellent way to teach your young children to begin to engage in the worship on Sunday mornings because they'll be able to memorize this before they can physically read it. And so part of their formation is great for them to be able to pray alongside with us corporately. And so if, for those of you who have little ones, it's something you can teach them line by line to, to memorize and to join in with their brothers and sisters in the church community and, and pray this all together. 
Before we uh, break down uh, the prayer and sort of explore it and get encouraged by it, I just want to make a quick note on a couple of criticisms that Jesus makes before he teaches on prayer. Uh, the first criticism that he makes on doing good works is he says, don't sound a trumpet when you do it. So this is the ancient version of posting everything you do onto social for the purpose of um, getting the ancient world likes and retweets, uh, which looked a lot like um, getting the, their, their, their uh, ancient world virtue signaling by making sure that everything was done that everybody noticed. So Jesus has a problem with that, and the, the problem that he has is it's all speaking to motive. And you notice as you go through the text, he's not interested in external rituals whatsoever, but he's deeply concerned about motive. The second criticism, and I'm borrowing from uh, a New Testament scholar, he's the principal of Wycliffe in Oxford, his name is Richard France, uh, Jesus' criticism of praying in the streets. And Richard France noted, notes this. He says, you know, prayer was not normally practiced on the street. But the criticism here uh, informs us that someone who strictly observed the afternoon hour of prayer could deliberately time their movements so that, oh, look at that. It's the moment of prayer. And where do I happen to be? In the middle of the street. So Jesus is seeing right through all of, all of the antics of the external sort of religious uh, uh, motions and he's saying he's he's not um, yeah he, God is not pleased by us just going through motions he's truly after our hearts that love him and the last criticism Jesus makes is about vain repetitions and uh, it's not a, it's not a criticism about the the length of prayer per se again getting back to motive it's the vain repetitions other English translations use the word babbling uh, the word in the Greek here it's uh, Jesus is actually being humorous and provocative and ironic because the Greek word here is uh, Batologasete. And batologasete is like saying blah, blah, blah. So imagine that from your point of view, you're being tremendously pious. And from God Almighty's point of view, it's a whole lot of bagolasete. This is just all blah, blah, blah. And so can you just imagine being that first audience and your view of uh, the religious leader praying in the street as they're the most righteous person and then... Jesus is saying, actually, I'm hearing that like a lot of babbling. So this is all provocative of, of, as to motive and heart and our desire. And so I want to go into the richness of this prayer this morning. And uh, last note I'll make before we do that is to say, I want you to notice the prayer begins with our. It's communal. So from the beginning, God has desired a family. He is a father with children. So Christian faith is something that is lived out and enjoyed and done in community. It has always been. The Lord's Prayer is given in community. When Jesus institutes uh, the Lord's Table later in the book of Matthew, it's done in community. Right? When you do this, you do this as a communal meal. It's not an individual faith. Um, all of the New Testament letters are written to churches, to communities, so the modern deconstruction sort of movement uh, is not new. It's so old. It's incredibly old. Um, it's from the Gnostics on, this idea of sort of saying, well, let's deconstruct this idea of this institution called church and, and these, these things called doctrines and teachings that have been around for thousands of years. I can appreciate the criticism of the deconstructionists who will look at a system that is ill-advised or oppressive or nothing like Jesus or a church goes sideways and the teaching is unhelpful or it's crushing in some way. I think there's a lot of really good reasons to stop and say, maybe we need to deconstruct what's going on here. But the goal of a proper, uh, let's use the term, uh, orthodox deconstruction of a way we're teaching, 
would be that the goal would be to resemble the New Testament church. The goal would not be to deconstruct something and say, well, look at this. I've invented something that in no way resembles the New Testament church. That, to me, is a failure of, of a, being faithful to uh, the source material. Because then you're inventing something. If at the end of your deconstruction, you realize, well, it's just me and Jesus. I'm good. I can go for a walk. I can find a podcast that's better than uh, the preacher at my church in five minutes. Anybody can do that. By the game, this is not the heart of true Christian faith, faith which is done in community, walked out in community, because the only way for us to grow and sanctify and put off our sin and put on the love of our Savior and relish His grace by becoming more like Jesus is by having the sinners sitting next to us rub off on us and work things out in us. So we have to walk out in community, as messy as church can be. So it starts out, Our Father. We're going to look at three things this morning from this prayer. Um, Well, we're going to look at the whole prayer, but I've just divided it up into some categories. Firstly, we pray daily because we are dependent. I want to show us that in the prayer. Secondly, we pray with humility because God is wise. And then lastly, we pray confidently because we are loved. So firstly, let's look at this praying daily because we're dependent. It begins our Father. We're not praying to an important personal force who is over us. We're praying to a loving Father who is inclined towards us whose will is good and his heart is towards us. And, you know, before this, they were not regularly praying to God and were referring to him as Father. You may find a few obscure texts in the Old Testament where, where God is given the, is sort of the image of Father. But it's not until Jesus comes that all through the New Testament you continually see this new and fresh and intimate way of relating to God that Jesus presents to him as a loving Father. And, of course, in this room, even talking about God that way, it can be problematic for lots of people who want to use the human flawed filter of their own uh, human father and say, well, I have difficulty thinking of God in that way. But I want to encourage you to see that God as father is that he is the creator of all things. He is a a God of wonder and of grace and of love uh, who is unlike uh, any of our failed and flawed human fathers and those of us who are fathers even today, even that we desire to live to God's glory and we fail our wives and we fail our children and God is nothing like that, of course. But we're given this image of father. There's a uh, scholar from the 17th century. His name is Thomas Goodwin. And he gives an image of a father walking along the street with the child. And he sweeps up the child into his arms. And he kisses the child on the cheek. And he says, I love you. And he puts the child down. And then uh, Goodwin asks a question. He says, when, when the child was swept up and hugged and kissed, did the child become more a child? No, objectively and legally, just walking along the street, the child, the child was still the child. But when the child was being swept up in the arms, the child was experiencing something that was objectively true. And so God's grace for us at the cross is objectively true. God's love for us as children is objectively true. But we don't necessarily always experience that. And one of the ways that we build into our lives the experience of feeling the... the, the the warmth, the love of God is by having prayer become a a rhythm and a part of our lives. There are, of course, seasons of prayer where we pray and we feel absolutely nothing. And that is just true of being uh, human, dependent on God. And neither am I suggesting that your faith is true on the basis of experience, which would be false. But it would also be false to say, hey, the Trinity is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. No, it isn't. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That there is something that is experiential, in our love uh, for God and resting His grace. And it's given here, I think, in this image of the Father. 
And so we want to avail ourselves of prayer so that we can enjoy um, God in this way. I also want you to notice that it starts with praise. Our, our Father in heaven, praise be to your name. Hallowed be to your name. And uh, Jesus puts praise as primary in the prayer. And why, why would he do this? Um, you know, is uh, God some sort of cosmic megalomaniac who needs us to come to him every day and say, you are great, you are awesome, I praise you. Now, God is not insecure. Uh, maybe you're exploring Christian faith this morning and this is something you've wondered. You know, can I, want, can I worship a God who's sort of demanding worship from me? Well, if you look through the scriptures, God is not demanding uh, worship from you like an angry ogre. He's constantly calling us as humans to worship him precisely uh, because we need to, not because he needs anything. In fact, when Jesus uh, makes prayer, uh, and, sorry, praise primary, we're reminded uh, of how great and powerful God is and our need for him and uh, the truth that our lives are in his hands. He certainly doesn't need uh, to reminded of any of, be reminded of any of these things. And what praise does for us is it helps us cut through the noise of the myriad of voices that are bombarding us every day, uh, rival allegiances for our affections, and enables us to, uh, I'll use the language from Ecclesiastes here, re- open our fists and release the, the fistfuls of toil, chasing the wind, and just have a handful of quiet. And this is the beauty of what prayer avails us. So Jesus invites invites us into that praise because there is something wonderful about uh, recognizing our smallness. It's the pathway to peace in marveling at God's greatness. Um, And so God doesn't need anything. We're we're invited to praise him because uh, the human soul needs it. If we don't worship him, we will worship something else. And to borrow from C.S. Lewis, the refusal to worship God uh, doesn't make him any less God than it would be for uh, a brooding, angry uh, person uh, to think they can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the wall of their cell. God doesn't need our worship, but we certainly do need. And so when we experience uh, something great, we want others to experience it. Jesus has experienced the love and the warmth and the strength of the Father. Jesus experienced the empowering presence of the Father in tremendous turmoil. He wants us to experience that. It's like when you see... A film that moves you. You read a book that moves you. You go to a restaurant and the food moves you. You, you. you find something that moves you. You become an evangelist. And you want other people to experience this thing. You've got to read this book. You've got to see this thing. You've got to go there. This spot at the beach. No, no, no. Oh, the camping site. Oh, you thought that was the best camping site in Algonquin? It's not. It's this one. Evangelists. And so Jesus, knowing what is available in coming to the Father in praise, wants us to do the same. And the next line goes on to say, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done as it is in heaven. This is an invitation to rest in, in the sovereignty, the majesty. When I say sovereignty, I don't mean like a cold Greek fatalism. I mean the rest of God's uh, you know, loving uh, presence in our lives as a father in a, in a, in a wise and a sovereign way. That w- when, we, when we consider all of this... Um, it can be intimidating to pray, thy will be done. Sometimes we wonder if it's even good or useful to pray, thy will be done. Or is it better for us to look at the situation and navigate it and parse it out and then declare to God what ought to be done. And basically ask him in Jesus' name for what we think ought to be done. These can be tempting things. I remember when I was um, uh, at racing school, like way back in, uh, when I was doing that in my 30s. And I got in the car, I got in the pit lane, and across the track was this huge sign by Pirelli Tires. And it said... Uh, 
power is nothing without control. And then I sat in the car and I thought, wow, that'll preach. Um, That's kind of how I want to relate to everything. What's the point of it if I can't even control it? And so sometimes we can get discouraged in prayer, not want to go to God in prayer and build, build a rhythm in our lives of prayer because our view of it is like, well, if I... Power is nothing without control. If I can't pray for God to ask for this thing to happen next Thursday because that's what I really need and in my wisdom that, that's what is required and then God doesn't do it, what's the point of even praying? But we're praying thy will be done because we're resting in something bigger. And it's not because God doesn't care about what's going on in your life on Monday, which he deeply, deeply does. He cares ultimately about you and will carry you through these things. So we don't relate to God like a genie who exists to remove obstacles from our life to grant us endless days of comfort. And when, you th- when I think about the way that I've prayed many times, the prayer is a list of obstacles to my comfort. So I'm basically, I've bypassed the praise and I've just got to the divine shopping list. Hey God, it's me, by the way. Here's some obstacles and barriers to my peace and my comfort. <clears throat> Number one. And then you pray, um, and I've done that. I'm ultimately just sort of worrying in God's direction. And I'm like, okay, thank you for that. And I move on. Quick caveat is, of course, God invites us to cry on the couch and starfish on the bed and all the rest of it and, and weep and bring our sorrows to him. So I'm not saying that we don't do that. I'm saying that the way in which we do it is in this heart of praise, the smallness, this rest of God as Father. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We can trust that his will is good because he has a tremendous track record Uh, which culminates, of course, at the cross. How can we know that God is trustworthy? Well, for us as believers, we think of the perfect life of Jesus, his atoning death, his divine resurrection, for the purpose of renewing all things. God's goal in the gospel is ultimate renewal, right? Civic renewal, uh, natural renewal, right? Bodily renewal. Like, in the end... What we believe as Christians is that God will restore what he intended in the beginning and between now and then give us grace for the pain. And so because this is true, we can trust that God's will is good. Because when those disciples were looking at Christ on the cross, they all thought, as we would have, this is the worst possible scenario. But what they were looking at was the best possible scenario. God has a Wisdom that we can't fathom. That as things go sideways in our lives and in the world, the trust as we come to him humbly as small children, oh God, thy will be done, is a beautiful prayer of faith and of trust and of rest. Knowing that he will work all the things out. Some theologians have described the will of God in the human life and the human existence as being like a tapestry that you're looking at from the back. And it's all just colors and yarn everywhere. You have no concept as to what you're seeing. And then... But from God's point of view, you flip the tapestry around and it's very, very clear, abundantly clear what's happening. And God in his infinite wisdom is able to do this and we can trust him. In the same way that some of you in this room are avid campers and you like to go, uh, you know, deep camping. Let's go and try and get lost and go camping. That's exciting. A number of you guys do that. And if you've been to Algonquin Park and you know your way around and you bring a small child, the child has no concept where they're going. All the child knows is, You'll get me there. In prayer, when we are praying, thy will be done, is very much like trusting that God is going to get us there. I don't know how to get there, but he does. I don't know how this situation could possibly turn around, but it, and maybe it won't turn around. 
But even if it doesn't turn around, God will carry me through this. It transcends, this kind of prayer transcends being handcuffed by circumstance. So Jesus invites us into this because, you know, uh, in a cosmic sense, we're all toddlers, you know. Toddlers can't understand uh, at all not being given what they want. What they want. Take something away from a toddler that they want. They lose their minds because they can't conceive that this could possibly be good. You're like, actually, the fork doesn't go in the light socket. But from their point of view, you've ruined their life. And cosmically speaking, we are toddlers. And God knows, and he is good, and he is wise. And that's not to whitewash the sorrow and the tragedy and the pain in our lives. Because God uses the sorrow and the tragedy and the pain. Things that are nothing like him, things that are not his will, things that are not his desire, things that are a result of living in the brokenness of humanity. And he can take those broken things that are nothing like him and use those tragedies for his glory, for the good of your salvation. And even bring in you beautiful strength and renewal. And even a heart that is gracious and patient um, and compassionate and empathetic towards those going through the sorts of sorrows and tragedies that even God has brought you through. So we can trust that he is good. That, that uh, we can pray uh, thy kingdom come and thy will be done. As we move on, I want us to consider um, that we pray with humility because God is wise. And I think we see this as he invites us to Pray, give us this day our daily bread. You know, he knows what we need, even if we don't know what we need. And going back to the cosmic toddler analogy, um, you can try and explain things to toddlers, but no amount of explaining helps when their will is, you know, when they're thoroughly committed to their will. So when we are praying to God and we're saying, give us this day our daily bread, Notice that it's a, it's a posture that's been reoriented by the praise. This is the first time in the prayer where we're actually asking for something. But everything before this point has been all about reorientation. Praise to the Father, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, not mine. Please, God, help me to, 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 not, to not put you on trial as a, as a cosmic toddler for the things that I think. But it's a whole reorientation, and now I am asking. Uh, because sometimes as kids, we don't know what it is that we need in the same way that a, a wise and loving father does. Uh, when Nigel was really little, he would say to Susan, he would say, um, my legs hurt. And the first time she was like, what? Your legs hurt late at night. My legs hurt. He was very little, not growing pains. Well, look how tall his dad is. I never even, I don't even know what growing pains are. Uh, but he, uh, Nigel would say, my legs hurt. And, um, and then he vomited. And Susan realized, every time Nigel was saying, my legs hurt, he was feeling sick to his stomach, didn't know how to say, mother, I'm feeling nauseous as a small child. And he was just, the first thing he came out with was, my legs hurt. So then we knew after that, when Nigel said, my legs hurt, get a bucket. You know, our, we, we pray to God, we cry out to God, give me my daily bread, as best we know how to, from our point of view. And sometimes God answers the prayer precisely in the manner that we ask, and that's so exciting when that happens. And there's other times where God hears us say, my legs hurt. And he's like, actually, uh, that's not what you need. I do know what you need as your loving and heavenly father. And my answer to your prayer will be good, but it will not be in the manner in which you've asked. So this is such a posture of trust and of rest. Going to the scriptures with a hermeneutic of trust. Going to prayer with a hermeneutic of trust. It's actually quite liberating to pray to God this way. 
without the feeling that getting your prayers answered is like a divine lottery, that you didn't word it properly and ask it in the right way and pull the right levers and push the right buttons. And God's like, I'm sorry, I was thinking between a number, between one and a billion, and you didn't get it right, so your prayer's not getting answered. It's not a divine lottery from a genie. It's a loving, uh, a loving Father who, who cares for us. Give us this day our daily bread. Reminds us of the daily bread that was given in the wilderness to the children of Israel. It wasn't weekly bread, not monthly bread, not yearly bread. Every day that dependency. Every day just coming back and being dependent. We come to the Lord's table. Many of us hold our hands open like this. Just empty hands. Give me this day, O God, my daily bread. You know what I need. I trust you. You are good and wise and heavenly Father. My life is in your hands. And this is a good place to be. And uh, so we can ask with such uh, humility, but also a, a, a confidence because of his goodness in this way, which leads to uh, the final thing. We pray to God confidently, precisely because we are loved. You know, quite often when we're going through sorrows and trials, we want answers. But the human heart is not healed with information. You know, comfort comes through a person. Small child is freaking out in a storm. Remember when you were little, maybe you got freaked out in a storm, you ran into your, your sibling's bedroom or your parents' bedroom or you're sleeping over at a friend's house in the, in the storm and you jump into their bed. Little children freak out at storms and what you say to the child, if the child comes to you in a storm, is you say, it's okay, you're going to be okay. I'm here, daddy's here, you're okay. Everything you're saying in the midst of, from the, from the perspective of that small child, like this is a horrible tragedy, everything is, I am here, I am with you, I love you, and that's where the comfort comes from. You, you don't say um, to, uh, to the small child, it's going to be okay, you're okay, what's happening right now? There's, there's an electrostatic discharge equalizing two regions in the stratosphere, and that's what's happening. And the child says, oh, thank you for that explanation of the electrostatic discharge. I feel so much better now. Thank you for that information. Thank you. So when we come to God, we quite often are after the information. Why is this happening? What is going on? I need to know. And if God just wrote it in the sky, that wouldn't even heal us. It's Him. It's the Father. Give me this day, my daily bread. I'm confident, oh God, that I am loved by you. And uh, the next line goes on to say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. This shows us the flow of us receiving God's grace for our guilt. And then that manifests in gratitude. And there's so many scriptures that are encouraging us in terms of forgiveness. And Jesus puts this right in the prayer because if we can't see that our need forgiveness is, our need for forgiveness is daily, um, if we can't see that Christ has bore our judgment, we're going to go through life wanting to exact judgment. We're going to see injustices in the world. We're having injustices done to us. And I'm not talking about, you know, turning a blind eye and pretending like those things are okay. Now, I'm not saying that. And I'm also not saying that we wouldn't speak to those things and be thoughtful about those things or challenge those injustices. I'm not saying that. I'm saying there's a difference between challenging injustice from a position of healing and humility or challenging injustice every day of your life because you have a soul that is eroding through unforgiveness and bitterness and anger and turmoil and your only way to get through life is to exact your judgment. And holding people in unforgiveness, putting them in that prison 
of unforgiveness is a way of exacting your judgment because they can't escape, they can't buy a forgiveness, they can't make you forgive, and so now you've got this debt that they cannot pay. And in the end, we are, of course, the ones that are absolutely tormented by this. And so Jesus asks us to forgive in the prayer so that our souls can be unraveled out of the need to exact a judgment and rest in God's goodness and God's grace and then be those who are able to give forgiveness. Miroslav Wolf is a Croatian theologian and he often writes and speaks about the belief in divine judgment freeing us from this life of seeking to exact our own judgment. He goes on to provoke the idea to say you can't even live a life of nonviolence if you don't believe in divine judgment. Because if you don't believe in divine judgment, there has to be retaliation. And you are forced into the cycle of retaliation. And so we're asked to forgive in this uh, sense. To borrow from Martin Luther, he said, everyone must duck their heads to come into the joy of forgiveness through the low door of humility. This, of course, doesn't mean that any of the infractions or the hurts or the pains or the abuses that have been done to any of us are okay, because they're not. Forgiveness is not saying that things are okay. It's saying that in Christ, I've been forgiven of everything, and you don't owe me anything. It's liberating to us in this sense. To borrow from Charles Spurgeon, once God pardons you, there is no end to that pardon. And when we sit and relish in that grace that we've received, this is then the motivator for our forgiveness. The text goes on to say, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Again, this posture of humility, this confidence that we are loved, we are unable to deliver ourselves from the evil within our own hearts. We are unable to deliver ourselves comprehensively from the evil in the world. So we must come to this place of trust so that we can navigate the challenges of life today uh, with a heart that says, oh God, would you keep me from temptation and would you deliver me when I am being tempted uh, so that we can uh, be people of compassion and not judgment uh, on others sitting in this room when we fail uh, because uh, different lures catch different fish. And so we want to have, be people of, of compassion uh, towards those who are brothers and sisters who sin so that we can call them to these lives of righteousness and relishing God's grace. Uh, we ourselves are uh, recognizing that we need to be delivered from judgment. As I close, I want to just draw your attention to the last line, which uh, most scholarship agrees this, was, and this line was added later. That, uh, uh, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. That in the oldest manuscripts, it isn't there. And that probably somewhere in the first century, the church had added it. Either as a culmination of other teachings that Jesus had done, or as a summary of things that Jesus had said that summarized the prayer. But I draw your attention to it because it is a great reminder that there is a king. And there is a kingdom. And all kingdoms are passing away. But his is not. And we are children of the king. Children who get to, re- get, get to rest in security and identity of an inheritance and an assurance uh, with an attitude that is framed uh, by God's goodness so that we can go out into the city, see our vocations as mission. We can live to the glory of God by putting on the new humanity because we are resting in the, king, in the kingdom that is coming. And we're designed to live more and more into congruence of that. So my friends, may we pray confidently because we are loved. With humility because God is wise. And may we pray daily because we are dependent. Let's pray.